Live from the KIJU studios and beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 42, Ben Avery versus Camera versus Jiger. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the film curator here on Monster Island, Nate Marchand, and making a long overdue return visit to the island is... Honestly, I would call him a podcast philanthropist because he runs a little empire of podcasts. Hey, it's me, Ben, Ben Avery, and hey, Nathan, glad to be back on the island. <laughs> yeah, I am very happy to see you again, sir. And and how goes the podcast empire? <laughs> it goes at its own pace, you know? There's there's a lot of moving pieces, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot going on, I have to say. You're one of the busiest podcasters I know. <laughs> so, yeah, and it kind of slowed down a little bit because we did move mm-hmm. um, into a new home, and yeah, also I've got kids starting college and graduating and yeah it's a very busy season right now yes but. i can tell which is why it's amazing that you squeezed in a little time to come visit jimmy and i here again <laughs> but hey i get to talk about gamera and that is just fun and exciting to me even though it's this movie it's still fun and exciting. To me. <laughs> yeah this movie oh yes 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 because this is part of the year of camera Although at this point, I think the Stockholm syndrome is completely setting in because I think I'm actually starting to like these things. What's there not to like, except for a lot of things, but um, it's still lovable. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah, you may not but like yes. it, but it is still lovable. Yes. Uh, in case you didn't know, listeners, we are here to talk about Gamma versus Jiger. Yeah, I got the moves like Jiger. There, I got it out of the way. The obvious joke out of the way. Thank you, Luke Jack. I'm very glad that I was out of the way now because (laughs) (laughs) it's gone. It's done. I don't have to hear it again. Yeah. Oh, wait. Yes, Jimmy, I know. I forgot that. Or would you prefer that? Uh, Either one would apply at this point. I... (laughs) I've told you the story before, maybe when my I told a joke at the dinner table and no one laughed. I said, come on, that was a joke. And my one daughter just looked at me totally deadpan and said, well, you should have done. So we would have known. (laughs) Well, it it comes pre-installed here at the KIJU studios, Ben. So you're covered. (laughs) All right. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, If it's not me, it'll be Jimmy. He'll he'll do it. But before we start diving headlong into this, how would you get here today? It was just absolutely crazy. I got on a boat and it took me there and I got off the boat and I was on the island. It was wild, man. Oh, I forgot the crazy part. I dropped my pen under the seat and couldn't get it. Mm. So it was just one of those things where it's like one thing after another, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. Thrilling. And now I'm here and I'm so glad to get that out of the way. Mm -hmm. Man. Yeah. I mean, as a fellow writer, I can understand you're very attached to that pen. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was one of those you know, big pens mm-hmm. that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you, I, can I, find, I have nine others in my bag. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you'll be able to find probably, I would say at least a half dozen 
at the many places here on the island. You could probably grab one when you leave the studio. Go to the Natural History Museum and grab one over there. You know, go to the resort, as grab long, one over there. As long as it's one of those little chain things where you can just easily pop the little uh, ball out of the thing and, mm, mm-hmm, and steal mm-hmm, it easily. Mm-hmm, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I know. Uh, what was I that mean, again, I, Jimmy? It was just, it was nuts, man. It was nuts. <laughs> what was that again, Jimmy? Oh, really? You think the board's going to arrest Ben for taking pens? I don't think so. <laughs> Besides, if they do, I'll talk to Raymond Martin. He'll take care of it. <laughs> good old Raymond. Yes, good old Raymond. With that transatlantic accent. I mean, it's amazing. I didn't realize people actually talked like that in real life. It's <laughs> I- uh, but I think everyone who talked like that in real life was making themselves talk like that in real life. So yes, was it real life or not? Is this the real life? Well, <laughs> or is this just fantasy? I don't, yes, I don't know. yes. But anyway, and then along those lines, Ben, we will also be discussing Expo 70 because what else do you talk about with this movie? Because it's basically a travelogue for Expo 70. Yeah, they they handed this one to you on a platter. (laughs) It's like when they're making this movie, they said, in the future, when someone is talking about these movies and needs some sort of historical context to have conversation about, this will work really well. I think, yeah, they just handed it to you on a platter. And actually, some pretty interesting stuff. I didn't do a deep dive, but I did look into, like, well, what was going on? Why were they doing this? Why was it so important? Yes. But before we can do that, I am contractually obligated to read Jimmy's entertaining info dump. So that will play. And then through the magic of podcasting, because you are quite familiar with the magic of podcasting, Ben. I know you are. In fact, you introduced me to the magic of podcasting. It's a magical place. (laughs) It's a magical place, just like Tahiti. We will slip away while that plays and go watch the movie in the screening room. Once more, Gamera is the heroic and benevolent friend to all children, but the adults distrust him at first, despite the kids insisting that he is good. He tries to prevent the humans from moving the Devil's Whistle to the Japanese mainland, and after failing to do that, he fights the rampaging Jiger to save them from the beast's wrath. Jiger is an ancient and vicious demon of legend from the continent of Mu. She pursues the Devil's Whistle because it keeps making a noise that causes her tremendous pain. Implicitly, it seems she implants an egg into Gamera to kill him and to reproduce. The baby Jiger is her parasitic offspring who is concerned solely with survival. The smart and defiant Hiroshi Kitayama and Tommy Williams are the Kennys of this film. After witnessing two of Gamera's fights with Jiger and trying to suggest ways to help Gamera after he has parasitized, they steal a yellow submarine and pilot it into the big turtle to save his life so he can kill Jiger. Susan Williams is Tommy's precocious and scowly younger sister who spends most of the movie tagging along with her brother and his friends. The absent-minded but supportive Ryusuke Kitayama is Hiroshi's father, who is building a yellow submarine for Expo Land and later advocates for Hiroshi and Tommy when they take matters into their own hands to help Gamera. Miko Kitayama is Hiroshi's friendly and overbearing older sister who, when not flirting with her boyfriend, is either chastising members of her family or trying to keep them safe. The intelligent and instructive Keisuke Sawada is the aforementioned boyfriend, an archaeologist working with Expo 70 who spends most of the movie collaborating with officials about what to do about Jiger. 
The human and kaiju plot lines are at first separate, but once Gamera appears, the plot lines become unified. The humans then spend their remaining screen time combating and or assisting the monsters. While the adults at first don't trust Gamera, for some reason, Jiger is the problem. Gamera tries to prevent the Devil's Whistle from being excavated, thereby keeping Jiger asleep, but fails. Gamera fights Jiger the first time, but is immobilized when Jiger impales his limbs with solid saliva missiles. The JSDF engages Jiger in the middle of Osaka, but Jiger destroys them with her magnetum ray. Gamera then battles her for a second time, but Jiger stabs him with her tail stinger, planting an egg inside the big turtle. An array of giant speakers is used to keep Jiger at bay while she sleeps when it's learned she's vulnerable to low-frequency sound waves. The problem is solved by Gamera with some help from the humans. Having revived after Hiroshi and Tame killed the baby Jiger, Gamera fights Mama Jiger a third time. He recovers the devil's whistle and flies around with it, creating noise that incapacitates Jiger and then stabs the demon beast in the head with it. He then, for whatever reason, flies both Jiger and the whistle back to Wester Island. The script by series regular Nissan Takahashi is a simple children's adventure story with supernatural and science fiction elements, but it is a bit more complex than the last few entries because it has a more developed subplot for the adults and a travelogue for Expo 70. Despite releasing the year the Japanese film industry crashed, the movie was given a budget of 35 million yen, up from 24 million yen for Gamera vs. Giron, and it shows. The miniature sets are larger. There is more city destruction. The Jiger suit is impressive, and the monster has a laundry list of ridiculous powers. The addition of interior sets and miniatures for Gamera's innards brought new concepts and visuals to the franchise. The end result is a surprisingly effective production at a time when film was almost dead in Japan. This is mostly a lighthearted children's movie, but it does have a moderate amount of gravitas with Gamera's suffering and the threat posed by Jiger. With its melding of sci-fi, kaiju, and the supernatural, it's a fantasy film. You also wanted to do something new with the series and settled on a Fantastic Voyage-style story that replaced outer space with inner space. It's a concept that's rarely been done in kaiju media. Aside from that, the rest of the movie isn't all that experimental. To that end, this marks an expansion of style for the Gamera series and the kaiju genre, although, as noted, this concept was borrowed from a 1966 film. It's also an expansion by featuring the first female kaiju in the Gamera series. Besides continuing to tap into the ongoing success of the Gamera series, the movie was made as a tie-in with Expo 70, which is why it featured a travelogue sequence early on. As usual, it was aimed at the kaiju-loving child audience. Box office figures are unavailable, but the movie was successful at the cinema when released in Japan March 21, 1970, which was a week after Expo 70 began. It was the last of the Showa Gamera movies to be released stateside by American International Television, or AIP-TV, who licensed it for syndication starting later that year. The dub was directed by Brett Morrison and recorded by Titan Productions, a.k.a. Titra. Aside from a new title, Gamera vs. Monster X, the first time Gamera's name was used in an English-language title since the first movie, and new English-language credits, the movie is unchanged. There are a few forces at play some of which are par for the course in the franchise at this point. The kids believe that Gamera's good clashes with the adults' unwarranted distrust of the giant turtle, and eventually the adults realize they themselves are wrong. 
Hiroshi and Tommy fly in the face of the adults. Children should be seen and not heard assertion by stealing the yellow submarine. Science is at odds with the supernatural when it comes to the devil's whistle and the legend surrounding Jiger. However, in the end, science does offer explanations and solutions. Mr. Kitayama's parental authority is at odds with his young daughter's independence, if only mildly. Ancient civilization runs up against modern civilization thanks to the excavation of the devil's whistle, and some might even call it an example of colonialism. There are a few themes present. The adults learn, again, to trust Gamera. Expo 70 is presented as a glorious example of internationalism, innovation, and cooperation. Relatedly, it is science and human ingenuity that find solutions to the Jiger problem. Gamera perseveres at every turn despite all the horrible things Jiger does to him. The adults learn not to meddle with ancient forces they don't understand. Keisuke tells the audience the ultimate moral of the story in the closing narration when he says adults mustn't lose their childlike insights or be close-minded. My contractual obligations have brought me to the midpoint of the year of Gamera, so let's get it over with, I mean, move on to the Toku Talk. All right, Ben. Now, as has been happening quite a bit this season, because, again, mandated by the board, whenever there was one of these Gamera movies that was riffed on MST3K... I didn't get to watch the MST3K episode, but my guests got to. You didn't watch the MST3K for this because there wasn't one yet. Did you hear the big news? I did. I did. And I did not take part in the Kickstarter, so I'm hoping there's other ways to get into uh, to watch that. Oh, you'll be able to subscribe to Gizmoplex. It'll be okay. all right. Yeah, I've looked right. into it. I did throw them a little bit of money, but I'm looking forward to it. But yes, ladies and gentlemen, in case you didn't know, this is one of the 12 movies, Gamera vs. Jiger, is going to be on the next season of MST3K, and I have to admit, I'm pretty excited, because as Luke Giaconetti mentioned in the previous Gamera episode that we did, contrary to popular belief, Joel Hodgson and the rest of the guys over at MST3K actually like these Gamera movies because riffing them helped make the show even more popular, so I'm not surprised they're going back to the Gamera well. Yeah, well, and, and why not? I mean, there's a complete set, right? Except for this one and... I mean, Virus and Super Monster. Yeah, and, and <laughs> one of these is not like the other and that probably doesn't deserve it. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, I know. Virus is not like it because this movie is not about an exciting chapter of your childhood. We get it. Moving on. Yeah. If you haven't heard that episode yet, Ben, you'll have something to look forward to because apparently the uh, little Jim in Virus is actually Jimmy over there. So, hmm. Oh, interesting. You know, he says that yeah. uh, he was he just put down on his resume to NASA that he helped Gamera save the world from aliens at age 10 and they hired him. So, Well, <laughs> uh, there were some kids in this movie who helped save the world. And they never worked again. So, yeah, well, that's actually true of most of the kids in these movies. <laughs> but we'll get to that. Most definitely, we will get to that because I have opinions about the kids in this one. The Kennys, as we like to call them around here. Yes, Jimmy, you're a Kenny. Get used to it. Maybe I should start calling you Kenny just to drive you nuts. <laughs> hmm. Uh, now, this is something that I will be discussing in a bit more detail in a future episode. But, Ben, did you know that this movie actually came out the year the Japanese film industry crashed? I did not know that, but I figured it was around in there. But... Yeah, 1970, 
It was not a good year for Japanese cinema. A lot of terrible things happened. Eiji Tsuburaya died. Kurosawa almost killed himself. Yeah. So the fact that this movie actually had a slightly larger budget than the last couple of Gamera movies is a bit astonishing. And you can tell that they threw more money at this because they got bigger sets and more explosions and all kinds of fun stuff. (laughs) Throwing that money up on screen. Yeah, and you can almost see the money on the screen, almost. Yeah, although director Noriaki Yuasa actually did say it wasn't that much higher. And I'll say, you know, watching it this time around, I watched it twice. I watched the English dub, and I did watch the Japanese original. Oh, wow, you've been busy. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, it's a solid and competent kaiju film. That's that's kind of my my end spoiler review of of this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's no Godzilla. But. No, it, it does the thing it, it needs to do. Special effects, monsters, story, gimmick. Basically, but. at least it's not in space. Oh, calm down. I know you love the space ones, NASA boy. But yeah, but the, it, actually, I found I a, a quotation here from Noriaki Yuasa. You're talking about gimmicks. He was desperate to find a new gimmick to do with this movie. He actually said, I thought about what I could do that was different because I felt like I had done almost everything I could with Gamera before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't know how different it is, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just to get some of the inspiration for this movie out of the way, this actually was inspired a little bit by photo features of ancient ruins and Easter Island. Get it? Because Wester Island? Oh, man. Huh? huh? When they first said that name, I I laughed so hard when I heard them. Wester Island. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That makes sense. Oh, my gosh. That makes sense. And also, apparently, there's two Stonehenges in this universe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because that was not Stonehenge as they were... You know, going through all those photos, but yeah, but those were in manga magazines, and you know, these are for kids, and kids love that manga, so you know, they just said, Hey, let's do that, and yeah, well, this this does check off a number of things that when I was a kid that I would have been into. I mean, I wasn't reading those kind of photo magazines, but I was reading about things like Stonehenge, Easter Island, dinosaurs, and that was me in late 70s, early 80s, so <laughs> again. It's not horrible. It's very competent. And mm-hmm. so they're hitting those definitely for kids mo- uh, little uh, topics and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, another kind of it's it, actually it's kind of interesting. Some of the sources I was looking at doing my research on this film actually argued that even though it's following some trends, obviously, you know, there is some interest in ancient ruins and all of that. But they also said maybe it actually beat some other movies to the punch with some things. In fact, it actually said that the supernatural was starting to get more popular at this point, late 60s, early 70s. And one guy, it was actually August Ragone on his intro on the new Blu-rays for these movies, argued that this is a little bit similar to, of all things, The Exorcist. Okay. Because of the devil's Tell me more. Because of the devil's whistle. Okay. Because you know they go off and they find it, and then it unleashes this curse on things. He didn't go into a whole lot of detail, but I'm guessing he's also probably thinking of the opening of the Exorcist when they're at the archaeological sites. Probably what he's mm-hmm. really talking about. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. I don't think the devil's whistle is quite Pazuzu, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I don't think because when was the Exorcist? That was it was, that was the late mid 70s, to late seventies, right? if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that the makers of The Exorcist weren't looking at this and 
looking for inspiration. But. <laughs> I, I'm going to take a wild guess and say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's always possible. Yeah, but I guess there was an occult boom at the time. I'm not sure. Uh, the, the occult boom came later in the 70s for sure, but I didn't know if it was really, maybe it was starting at this point. I don't know. I wasn't around. <laughs> yeah and I, I wasn't there for the the beginning of any of that so I yeah if i was i was too young for it <laughs> well i will say this at least the movie has the small mercy of only having a wee bit of stock footage and it's just at the credits <laughs> yeah no and, and they're giving you a greatest hits a little bit there and saying you know what you're gonna expect hey you remember this you like that you're gonna love this because we're going there again Mm -hmm. Although I swear that there's a quick bit of stock footage later on when they're showing people hiding underground. I'm pretty sure that was from Barugan. Okay. <laughs> if you're talking about the scene I think you're talking about, I've got a very, very sarcastic note about that one. Oh, what is it? Just give it to us now. <laughs> well, that's where the police guys are like yelling down the stairs. Everyone, just stay calm. <laughs> He's yelling this to a room of people who are being absolutely silent and completely still. <laughs> Like, I, I was like, this guy is really, he's either overreacting or he is not reacting to something that they were planning something else to be in that scene because <laughs> they, they are all absolutely silent and they're all just looking very pensive and very much like we are going to die and <laughs> no one is saying a word. Oh, man. Well, and speaking of greatest hits, we actually have some more callbacks in this movie to previous Gamera movies. We have another yellow submarine, just like yes. in, yes, Jimmy, your favorite one. <laughs> and relatedly, we also have another appearance by Kon Omura. You might know him better as Corn Job. <laughs> This is great. I mean, my kids have only seen the Mr. Science Theater versions of of any of these movies. Mm -hmm. I haven't made them watch the real thing and don't plan to unless they ask to. And I don't think they're going to ask. To. But as soon as he came on the screen, wait, is that Cornjob? Is that him? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think he is. Yep. The other thing we got a little bit of a, a callback to, and this will be very familiar if you uh, watch the Mystery Science Theater ones, is the bicycle theme mm -hmm. was here. The we're going to ride our bicycle. We're going to ride our bicycle. Uh, we're going to ride our bike. That music came back while they were riding their bicycle. Yep. <laughs> I, I was shocked and amazed because it's been years since I've seen this. I think the last time I saw this was when I was buying the DVDs that were coming out from Shop Factory. Shop Factory. And as I was buying them, I was watching these movies. And that actually was the first time I ever saw this one was through that set. I didn't even watch this one on my public domain box set. I got years and years ago. <laughs> with uh, Gamma versus Monster X. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny I, because there actually, is it's possible I may have watched it, but it just washed over me, and I didn't even realize what I was watching. But um, so I, there's a lot of stuff that I'd forgotten about this movie. I, in fact, I probably forgot more than I ever remembered. You know, like it was just again. I, I think it just washed over me the first time. But yeah, I was amazed that they brought back the bicycle theme even more so that it actually happened during a bicycle scene. So. Yeah. Which is, I'm glad that you brought up the score in this. This is something I actually neglected to mention when I did the Gear On episode, which was the previous Gamera episode of MIFE, which is composer Shunsuke Kikuchi. He has unfortunately passed away recently. In fact, not too long after I published the episode, it was announced that he had passed away. And I felt like it should be mentioned 
he did a lot of work. Uh, he worked on Gamera. He worked on Kamen Rider and a bunch of anime. He's really well known for his anime scores. I think the one he's most noteworthy for is I think he worked on at least Dragon Ball, maybe even Dragon Ball Z. Don't quote me on that. Uh, yeah, Jimmy, you can look that up <laughs> you know, for your blog. But wanted to make sure I mentioned that. So I did want to go back to the horror movie connection that you talked about, though. What year was this movie? Was it 1970? 1970. Okay. 1970 was also when I think it was Toho was working with Hammer to make some vampire movies. Yes, the Bloodthirsty trilogy. Yeah, the first one came out in 70, I believe. But the Hammer films would have been popular before that in order to create that partnership and make that something that Toho would be interested in doing. So it is possible that the the statue slash uh, stake at the end. (laughs) Uh, it is possible that there was some vampire inspiration for this movie. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw that part, I just said, headshot. <laughs> I, mean, I just said, oh my goodness. Like they, they went there. They did that. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. And the right reaction the shot of the actors, it was priceless. They're all yes, just kinda, the little girl's yeah. face is just like, what? what did I just see? <laughs> I, I, the kids are either traumatized for life or think it's the coolest thing they've ever seen. I'm not sure. Yeah, Gamera, friend to all children, traumatizing them for life. <laughs> By stabbing monsters through the head. Although what's really confusing is Gamera has to take him back to Wester Island. And I'm thinking, why? She's dead. <laughs> I need to make sure I use the correct pronouns because Jiger is actually female. <laughs> I said him a second ago. So her. He oh, that's take true. Her yeah, because back. Jiger impregnated. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's just weird. Although, as you'll see, Ben, after we're done broadcasting, Jiger is here on the island, but the scientists have to replicate the sound that the devil's whistle makes to keep her mm. under control because we, we don't need any shenanigans going yeah. on. <laughs> but speaking of that, Another horror movie connection, again, also potentially anticipating something that came later, something that is near and dear to both of our hearts, and yours as well, Jimmy, Alien. It's possible. Ridley Scott and Dan O'Bannon watched this and said, that's it. That's what our Alien movie is missing. Oh, my gosh. But the first time I saw this, I was not expecting the whole parasite impregnation thing it's not something honestly i would expect from a movie in 1970 let alone one meant for children but oh my gosh but yeah uh, in fact the the guy who does the commentary on the arrow blu-ray set i think his name is holland he actually compared jiger to the alien queen (laughs) well no i mean if you're gonna make the alien comparison that is absolutely where you need to go it is absolutely where you need to go. And <sighs> yeah. So we have this movie anticipating Alien. And it's actually kind of terrifying because Jiger has a little spike that pops out of her, the end of her tail. And then she pokes a victim and implants an egg that starts growing inside the victim. And then we have Gamera does, as they said on the Monsters vs. Men podcast, he does his little death walk. <laughs> over to the ocean and then he falls over and then his face turns into a vinyl action figure and they have to go inside of him fantastic voyage style oh man they now that they actually did rip off i'm I'm gonna just say right now that they they ripped off fantastic yes they did they did 
I've seen Fantastic Voyage. It's been a long time, but yeah, and it was a pair of kids in the yellow submarine, and is, and then that's when it just goes to I as you. I don't think it goes quite to as you would put it, Ben. Uh, clown shoes land, but no, it does. Uh, but it does get pretty absurd because apparently there's a breathable atmosphere inside of Gamera. But um, they're in. Uh, to be fair, that is the lung that they are in true it is the lung i'll give them that but they're in the, but it looks like a cave inside of his his lungs look like a cave yeah and apparently they are very familiar with giant monster biology because as they're walking along they recognize that that one hole there is a weird hole yes compared to everything else in the lung that one is a weird hole and so they know that that's where you need to look to see if the recycled costume is there too <laughs> be afraid of <laughs> which from what i read that thing had a couple different names i usually call it baby jiger but it was also called uh, i'm trying to look it up here on my notes like it was a uh, jiger 2 and vamp my one of my favorites was vampire larva <laughs> <laughs> nice well it was it was draining blood so this is true <laughs> perhaps you or uh, your friend over oh, well your co-creator, so to speak, of Welcome to Level 7. Maybe he can shed some light on this, but someone in my research, actually, it was Holland again, I believe, actually likened the kid's journey inside of Gamera to a Disney ride called Journey into Inner Space. I don't remember that one. I actually don't remember that one either. I did do an underwater one that was, I mean, this is, again, two, two and a half, 25 years ago. No, more. 30, 35 years ago, but it went underwater and it was kind of the submarine kind of situation. And it, seeing them in their submarine reminded me of that. But I never did do the inner that that one. Daniel Butcher would know mm -hmm. for sure. But. Yeah. Well, and then since we're on the subject of Baby Jiger, what did you think of Baby Jiger's weaponized snot? <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say that is one of a couple different unfortunate, unfortunate things in this movie because... <laughs> It, yeah, baby. I mean, uh, at least uh, you know, Mama Jiger. Uh, it, not kidding you. There was actually a magazine that called the Mama Jiger version of it "Solid Saliva Missiles." Well, I mean, if the baby's shooting liquid saliva, then it only makes sense. But mm -hmm. um, and, and then we had the Oscar-caliber suit acting performance on Baby Jiger. I mean, oh. slow okay. clap to that man. <laughs> that death scene. Was really death by telephone? Now, it's like they they killed the baby Jiger with the first ever cell phone. That's really what it is. Uh, no, I mean it was a radio transmitter or transceiver, but at the same time, it's two children killing another child. It's, <laughs> it's awful. Uh, there's a lot of things in this movie that if you think about it too much, and you, you probably shouldn't, but that's what you do on a podcast, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. It's what pretty we do, disturbing, especially on this podcast, but. <laughs> Oh man! But <laughs> does it? Really I, get... I don't know when it's appropriate to talk about suit acting, but I do want to talk about the the Gamera performance that we get as well. Oh yeah, well, what'd you think of that? I, now I I gotta admit I really really felt sorry for poor Gamera in this one. <laughs> oh, well, okay, so there is some elements of just tragedy if you don't have empathy for Gamera in this movie, especially when he has when he's pierced through with the saliva missiles and can't pull his limbs in to f be able to fly away from being upside down on his shell. It's really effective. But the suit performance, and I'm blaming this on Gamera. I feel like Gamera is just in this for the paycheck for this movie. <laughs> I feel like he's brandoing it. 
um you know like he's coming on he's like you got me for three days man three days and i'll read the script before i go on it's okay i don't need to know my lines give me give me some cue cards over there you know and i, I can't pronounce krypton um like he's just I feel like he's just walking through this movie kind of in slow motion like he just woke up after a bender the night before like it's just <laughs> Come on. Well, after everything you have to go through, I, I think I would go, go get drunk a little bit too. I'm just uh, I'm just saying. Although maybe I don't know. Gamera has been declared king of the monsters by the uh, you know the powers that be at the board of directors, which has caused nothing but trouble. Let me tell you. And <laughs> and maybe he goes and hangs out with Kong and gets into the red berry juice. I mean, Kong is. It has a reputation for having a little bit of a drinking problem, but yeah, now he's a professional, so he's not coming to the set inebriated, you know, but he's just not coming totally ready. I feel like, and he's, he's crawling. Uh, he's on his hands and knees for one scene where he's just kind of crawling and just kind of, uh, I can't even bother to put my feet down on the ground. Yeah, I'm just going to do this. And yeah. Well, it's like Hasselhoff with his hamburger or something. I, <laughs> come on. Well, there's some energy here. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, and then you have the complication of the fact that as usual in these old Gamera movies, the adults forget everything from the previous movies and they forgot that Gamera is actually the good guy because the kids are smarter than the adults in this. Except for always. dad, who's <laughs> dad's not very smart, but at least he's smart enough to trust Gamera. <laughs> we can trust Gamera. Because actually, what's the one line? <laughs> it's, uh, oh, what's the kid's name? Uh, Hiroshi? No, the, Tom. Yeah, Tom, Tommy, Tom. Tom. Yeah. Tom, uh, the token Tom's like, white hey, kid. it's yeah. Gamera. He's coming. He's going to help us. And his dad says, you dummy. Don't trust a monster like that. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> like I you said, just called your kid a dummy? <laughs> you call him a dummy and you forgot that Gamera's the good guy? I mean, he's only saved all of you people four times at this point. Just God, I mean, five, it's not, it's five not seconds earlier, bad. he's telling his kids, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is a different time. Yeah, a very different time and then they're shooting at him they saw gamera shows up because he's like you can't take the devil's whistle that's a bad idea and then they just start shooting at him and like at that point but, if i was gamera i'd just be like come on do you realize how irritating this is oh, come, I mean, but this is the start of that performance like they're shooting at him and he, it's like uh, uh he's and they're just shooting with machine guns and they're getting some pretty good little uh explosions on him with yeah. those machine guns yeah, that's yeah Impact that was points. that was quite impressive but yeah poor poor gamera he gets run through the ringer but that was a thing oh, let's talk about since we're talking about the abuse poor gamera goes through what about uh, at the end when he decides that the best way to deal with the sonic death ray uh, the ultra the super ultra ray i think is actually what they called it i'm like oh good lord oh man <laughs> oh. super ultra death ray or whatever and he decides <laughs> oh wait it's <laughs> oh. it's supersonic and then the kids are like gamera plug your ears and then he's just like oh telephone poles i'll stick telephone poles in oh, my ears man. that's a great idea <laughs> I am cringing in my seat the way I do when I see like a bone break on TV. You know, oh. I'm just like, oh, he's sticking because this goes way in. And then at the end, I think it's Susan yells out, like, I hope your ears get better. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the funny thing is, again, according to the commentary on this movie, <laughs> I, turtles actually don't use their ears much. <laughs> well, they, they can, certainly don't have ear holes like that. Like, well, yeah. According to him, he said they hear low frequency sounds, but they rely more on sight and smell. Unless you're Gamera. I mean, okay. Oh, which is another funny thing. I, I love this line. 
I love this line when they have the scientist exposition scene because you have to have one of those in all of these movies. And mm-hmm. this guy says, Gamera resembles a turtle. At which point I'm like, where is that Nicolas Cage <laughs> meme that with him looking all crazy? He says, you don't say. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Now that scientist, so here's the other cringe part, is that elephant trunk. Oh, thing. good Lord. Uh, the, uh, for what I understand, near as I can tell, that was real footage of a real elephant that was not faked, but they I showed tried it to, in black I, I, and white. That was when I did do a deep dive, and I'm looking, I'm like, I got to find this. Is this a thing? And apparently, I did find a couple places, not where you could see it, but where they did talk about some sort of infection like that. And when those maggots come out, again, great reaction shot from the cast. Like, they just cut from this spilling of all these giant maggots or whatever they I are. I think they're supposed to and be tapeworms. The reaction shot of all the people. Oh, and it is perfect time in editing yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Although I, I actually, I just saw in my notes since we're talking about Steve Gamera on a bender, I got, he must've still been on it a little bit when he showed up for round three against Jiger because he just plops right down on the ground and lets stuff blow up. And then he gets up and he's like, hi, I'm here to fight you. Okay. He crash lands every time he lands. This is true. It's just a straight up belly flop onto the ground. The first time when he makes his first appearance again. <laughs> so at the beginning of the movie, he's just setting me because I'm, I'm watching him do that. And like, oh, come on. And then he's on his hands and knees. I'm just, OK, Gamera's coming to the set and he is not ready. The guy's a professional. He's going to show up. He's getting paid for his three days, you know, and he's getting paid, you know, millions of dollars or whatever. He's doing the Brando thing. Yeah, I'll come back and do your movie. I, I'm Gamera. Who are you going to get to play Gamera? You know, but yeah, no one else could be Gamera but me. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Recast me? Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. But man, <laughs> drunken pro wrestling is basically what this is because Yuasa actually said, We watch pro wrestling to get the choreography. I'm like, Oh, yeah, you can tell. <laughs> no, and. and- there's some funny physics going on here. You know, it, it, as much as we're we're kind of ripping on things right now, like there's some fun stuff going on here, especially as a kid that I would find to be really fun. Uh, as an adult, I'm finding it to be kind of funny, but it's engaging my own children, you know, modern kids got age 10 through age 20 and they're watching it and they're digging it, even though there's no riffing going on with the. Uh, you know, people in the theater, but yeah. uh, like how Gamera's favorite tactic in this is to grab Jiger, fly in the air, and drop her to the ground. That only happens three times. I will say this for the you know the characterization of Gamera in the screenplay. <laughs> um, he's showing intelligence. You know, he's doing things that work. He's learning from his mistakes. You know, that little that tail spike thing that's trying to get him. He has his one foot, his, his right foot's on it. His left foot is exposed, so he switches feet. You know, changes so that the the thing can't get it, and he gets a tool, a club, mm-hmm. and starts clubbing it, and and making the spike just <laughs> shoot out. And then it magically from the sheer just force like, of the club. Yeah, and then it it, it shoots um, out, and then it shoots away because of like how did that happen? Yeah, it, <laughs> it shoots out, and then it continues. I think well, how did it happen? Um, the person pulling the string wasn't doing a very good job of it. Is no. how it happened <laughs> in universe. I, I think that it's still charged with some energy, you know, from the muscles or something, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, you, yeah, it, you really want to no prize that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, so Gamera is learning, and I really do feel like, as far as characterization goes, this one has some pretty good. One of the words I wrote down was struggle. You know, Gamera yes. is struggling to win and is working against the humans who want to take that statue and then fighting a, a foe that it really could overpower him and, and defeat him. 
and they do a good job of bringing the humans into the story. Now, granted, it's child fantasy that's bringing the humans into the story with the, the submarine going into his body and stuff. But they, they do a pretty decent job of integrating the monster and the human story together. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, <laughs> it's not the worst movie ever. No. But trust me, I've seen worse. But watching it's, it's all definitely of the, in that lower 50% for sure. Yeah. But. Yeah. Although I have to confess the Kenny's in this, they do memorable things, but I don't find them to be all that memorable of characters. No, they just, again, they just kind of wash through the movie. Although they're, I feel like the people in the movie don't really see much of them either. You know, they, they aren't very memorable to the people in the movie. There's the one scene where the guards are holding back all the reporters and stuff. And the kids just walk in the building right yeah, behind I know. the guards. That's such a They're thing. not even like, How do these kids get here? Why are they here? Why are they here for this meeting? This important meeting between <laughs> your soldiers and scientists when they're trying to figure this out. And, uh, and then they're the ones who say, hey, you should go do this. Or this is what you need to do. And I'm just like, why is the kids are smarter than the adults in this? Which, yeah, but yeah, that's that's child fantasy. You know, like that is, is the, the adults are doing all the heavy thinking, but the kids are the ones who are doing the active thinking. They're saying, oh, we got a plan. Let's do this. And it makes sense as far as the kids. Oh, we have an idea. No one else is doing it. Well, let's just go. Yeah. And so then they're a part of the plan because they went ahead and they were there. Now they're in camera. So it works as a child's fantasy. Yeah, it does. And I don't know if you know this or not, but it actually does fit in with director Yuasa because compared to most of the people who are working on the Godzilla films at Toho, he was actually a lot younger. He was a kid during the war, so he had a much different perspective on it. And he said that watching the adults the way they conducted themselves during the war years. He learned to distrust adults, which is something that carried over into his work as an adult, which is why he liked having kids in these movies and the kids are the smart ones in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're getting stuff done. The one thing that I didn't, I can follow that to an extent. It's when they actually are like, okay, so we're going to, we need to supercharge his heart. <laughs> and, and it's like, hey, let's give all of this really powerful electrical equipment and heavy electrical equipment to the kids and they are going to be the ones who go in and put it in gamma yeah, and okay. do things that really engineering technicians should be taking care of i was going to say the first time when they just steal the sub and go in there because again that's what they did in virus yep you and jimmy must have been bad influences on these kids man i'm just saying and <laughs> but then the second time why would you let the kids do it the second time it makes no sense <laughs> but no no, uh, but, but child logic. But And then to go along with that, I've remarked before about how a pattern that I've been noticing in all of these movies that have kids in them at the very least, because Barugan doesn't have kids in it, is that we almost always have, well, actually not almost, we always have these boy characters and they have either an overbearing older sister or a really annoying little sister. And or guess both. what? In this movie, we get both. <laughs> Okay, so the little sister, uh, Su Susan? Susan. Susan, yeah. My, the way I described her in my notes is just scowly little girl. She is like, scowly. That is the most scowly child. <laughs> she does a really, really good scowl, even when she's kind of playing happy. But man. <laughs> she's like a 90s comic book character. She's just always scowling. <laughs> And then there's the older sister who, you know, she's doing what she's got to do, taking care of, you know, her, her little brother. Mom's not there. But one of the, my favorite scenes with her was when she's 
obviously the one who's running the house, you know, and yeah. they're all getting ready to leave or they're all in the house and Jagger's there and Gamera is coming and the kids are like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, and she's no stay here. It's not safe out there. And dad just says, ah, Gamera's coming. Let him go. <laughs> it's like, what? 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 No, no. And so they go. Gamera loses. So she has to run out there and get them. Like, get back inside. <laughs> it's not yes. safe out here. Oh, my gosh. She's basically the surrogate mom at this point. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Especially with that dad who there's a couple funny pratfalls that he does. And some, you know, where they drop the. Well, Kano Murrow uh, was a comedic actor. So, it makes yeah, sense. well, and I feel like they're giving him a few things to do here, but his character doesn't warrant the stuff that they could have him do because, yeah. I mean, you see him do a lot more and a lot better, I feel like, in, in his previous movie. But, oh, yeah, I would um, say so there, although in, in this, this character one, gets a little bit more to do and is a little more but, fleshed out. Well, this one, it's subtle, though. It's kind of like it's not front and center. You know, when they're like moving some stuff in the house and the kids are holding one side, he's holding the other and they just drop it to go run and look at something. You're watching the kids. But if you're watching the whole scene and you see him, he falls, you know, and it's, it's a funny fall. They drop the hatch on the submarine on his head at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. You know, it's just little things like that where yeah, he's got the chops for the comedy, but there's there's not a lot. For yeah. Him Although uh, dad, uh, daddy con actually does get a, a little bit of something on her because the you know the cute young guy shows up and <laughs> and he's all like oh yeah you got a thing for him don't you and she's like oh leave me alone <laughs> and i don't blame him i unfortunately can't remember the actor's name offhand but that guy went on to become a common writer a couple years later so oh okay yeah a uh, common writer x if i remember correctly so <laughs> I, I don't blame her. My pseudo sister clone thinks common writers are dreamy. So I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's standard. You know, this is all stuff we've seen before. If you've seen these movies, if you've seen three of these movies, you've probably seen everything you're going to see in this movie before, except for some of the struggle stuff, some of the fight stuff. They, they do manage to get a few new things in. And then there's the elephant trunk. <laughs> you haven't yeah. seen that before in a in a kaiju movie yeah oh man oh man yeah i don't know if i mentioned this before but they had to show that in black and white because they thought the footage was too graphic well if it's fake i my son my older son was convinced he's like it's fake you can see lines you know and i'm just like no that i think that could be real like the lines that you see have you ever seen uh elephant's trunk i think that that could be real now i'm not convinced one way or the other Either way, it's really gross. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, might be one of the you know the standout moments of the movie, and it doesn't have anything to do with anything else, so, <laughs> <laughs> other than them trying to explain what is going on with Gamera. And I'm not 100 percent sure that that quite applies, but you know we'll go along with that. <laughs> but looking at my notes, just to grab a few more before we move on to the next segment. What did you think of Jiger's ridiculously long list of powers? I tried writing down all of it's, them. It's <laughs> okay, that's approaching clown car, you know, like that's or clown shoes. I mean, that, clown it, shoes, yeah. yeah. If you want clown car, watch Ultraman Taro. Their vehicles literally look like clown cars. <laughs> that's yeah. a discussion for another day. But yeah, so uh, all the stuff that had to do with his powers or her powers. I tended to write down th in things in my notes. It's just, that's not how it works. <laughs> like the whole, the suction thing where things just force. I mean, I'd rather they not say suction, you know, and it maybe suction was from the English dub 
because I don't remember it being in the in the Japanese yeah, uh, subtitles. No, but... I think it was supposed to be magnetic powers. Okay. I'm like, wait, so Jiger is Magneto? Or is she using the force? Uh, that was Jimmy's theory, was that it was the yeah, force. No, absolutely. But <laughs> Sith Lord I, Jiger? <laughs> Darth oh, <man>. Jiger? <laughs> Even if it's magnetic, like that's not how it works, you know? It's and then Jiger can fly at least for short distances with jets I, behind her head. I don't think that she's head, flying. By the way, I think she's just jumping high <laughs> and jumping far. Because if you notice, every single time she quote unquote flies, she goes up and comes back down. Yes, I don't think she she ever was flying. Yeah, and then we already mentioned the sonic death ray, which apparently has the same effect as Hetera, but this predated Hetera by a year. So. <laughs> So this movie is just prescient. I mean, this movie is just looking, it's prophetic, looking into the future and predicting the alien, predicting hetera, predicting the exorcist. Um, yeah. And then Gamera is predicting Marlon Brando's uh, performance as Superman. <laughs> I, yes, Jimmy, it might very well be just like in singular point, because apparently that is a thing in singular point is somehow predicting the future. At least according to the newest trailer. <laughs> I'll talk with Jet about it afterward. And then we mentioned the solid snot missiles, which actually reminded me a little bit of a... I, I don't think this was his name. I think this was his name, but a character from X-Men Evolution named Spike. Mm -hmm. I think that was his name. And then obviously we talked about... <laughs> we, uh, we talked about the alien queen tale. <laughs> so, yeah, Jiger's just ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. But uh, what did you think of the Kingdom of Moo in this? Yeah, that was a interesting uh, little okay. plot device. I'm going to the effects on that. They used all every camera trick that they could in their cheap bag of, of camera tricks. But <laughs> it did not look great to me. The, the matte painting didn't look like it belonged with the actors. You now, Kingdom of Moo, the kind of thing. Again, check that box off when I was young. You know, Atlantis stuff, like I, Lost Civilization things. If I had watched this on a Saturday afternoon, I would have totally dug it. Well, it does make some sort of sense because obviously the Kingdom of Mu was in Atragon, which was a Toho film. About okay, so I was going to ask, is, is if because it sounded familiar. We, so we've seen things that we're talking about a Kingdom of Mu before. Yeah, Atragon. From okay. 1963. That was a Toho film. One of my favorite Toho films, actually. So the Kingdom of Mu was in that. They actually invaded in that one. And they had a dragon god named Manda. So, yeah, yeah. Which is a, that's that's a great, great puppet kaiju. Oh, yeah. Wonderful that's kaiju. And then you had something very similar in, uh, yes, Jimmy, your sidekick's debut movie with Cetopia in Godzilla vs. Megalon. And then Atlantis is, in the Showa movies, the implied origin of Gamera. And then when you get to the Gamera trilogy in the 90s, he was made by Atlantis, and Mu is very similar to the story of Atlantis. So there's some interesting connections going on with all of this. So my, my question is, is Mu some sort of Japanese myth? Or is it is it something that they just made up? No, it's not made up. It and is, started riffing on. No, it's not made up. It is a thing. It is an actual story. Okay. There's another one. I can't remember the name of it. It's something for you to look up, Jimmy. That's also very similar, but it has a different name. It's mentioned in Godzilla versus Megalon, but it's a similar sort of story. And I think the idea was that Mu and this other kingdom were kind of sister kingdoms, and they uh, they fell at the same time, or close, or relatively close together. All right. 
But it's kind of one of those things where the story of a continent sinking in the ocean has just, that story's floated around into different cultures. But Atlantis is considered the first of those stories, if I remember correctly. I'll be doing research on Atlantis for some of the later Gamera films, obviously. So you'll get to learn a bit more about it then. Now, I'm more interested in finding out the history of Wester Island. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, Wester Island. <laughs> and then they even acknowledge Easter Island in this, too. And they uh -huh. show the statues. And I'm like, so the Devil's Whistle are the weird Easter Island statues, but they make noise. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Also, this was something that Jimmy confirmed for me because I saw it in my research. But NASA has actually experimented with infrasonic sound, and they have shown that it can make people sick. So that's why Jiger was not happy. Yeah, I wrote down the men who became sick when they were allergic to the sound. That's not how allergies work. Okay, You're not allergic to sound. Sound waves can affect you. Yes, but that's not how it works. <laughs> Telephone pole earplugs. That's not how it works. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> <laughs> Another fun moment was Jiger when he was sleep or she was sleeping, her fake snoring that they had. <laughs> Jiger spends half this movie sleeping. <laughs> I'm like, at this point, Jiger's not actually sleeping. She's pretending so that no one comes around to wake her up. Like we do this as parents, you know, we, we just pretend to be asleep. So the kids leave us alone and we get a few more moments in bed, you know, and I feel like that's what Jiger's doing. Like just few more moments they aren't bothering me anymore okay so what so you're what you're saying is she's anticipating the baby jiggers to yeah. come out of gamera so she's like i'm just gonna sleep and i'm gonna wait for the baby jiggers uh, for my little babies but i'm not gonna wake up immediately and <laughs> if i uh, i can get my sleep now okay it's quiet i can get my sleep now you you, you learn to value and to conserve your sleep so. <laughs> clearly <laughs> But when you apparently you are your whole purpose is to carry out a curse from a giant whistle, <laughs> I guess. Jiger's a okay, little but confusing. I love the explanation for it though. Like it wasn't intended to be a whistle. I think that it was accidentally a whistle, and they accidentally found out how to put Jiger to sleep because he talks about how the hole that goes through it, they poured blood into it mm -hmm, for like it was for blood sacrifice. sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's some good world building going here. It's not perfect, but it's it's good. It's, it's good. trying. And yeah. this seems like as good a thing to, as any to end this segment of the discussion. But that is the moral of the story. Did you catch the moral of the story, Ben? The moral of the story is that a tonsil is not the little thing that's dangling in the back of someone's throat. That's called a uvula. Watch out for the uvula. <laughs> so it's a girl house? Uh, do you remember? <laughs> okay. Did you ever see Monster House? I was a lion in Monster House. <laughs> I did not see that. Okay. Although I was told that it's a movie I would really dig. <laughs> well, because there's a point where the boy and the girl who are the main characters in that movie. They go into the house and there's something that looks like a uvula. And the girl says, oh, that must be the house's uvula. And the boy says, so it's a girl house? <laughs> Well, what was that's that, a, Jimmy? That's a joke that's going to really go over the, the kids' heads, and, and moms and dads are going to laugh at it. Sure. Yes, yes. 
Oh, you don't remember now? Oh, that's a first. So, <laughs> but also one of the adults, it was actually the Common Rider X guy actually tells everybody, what did we learn as grownups from all of this? Adults <laughs> mu yes. mustn't lose their child's insights or be close-minded. So yes, there you they, go. they do actually speak out the moral. It's true. Yeah, because that's what you do for stuff like this. Also, the other moral, you dummy, don't trust a monster like that. <laughs> well, that ended up being wrong. So, yeah, that's that's true. That's true. You know, it, just like Joel Hodgson said when talking about having all those Gamera movies on the show, in Gamera, we trust. So there you go. Children. Yeah, it's worth repeating because it was in Jimmy's entertaining info dump, but I felt like it should be brought up again. So, now it's time to move on to the Toku topic. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school? Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! yeah! The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books good and bad whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com Although I did just remember one quick little thing that I think you'll find interesting Ben and that is the screenwriter for this Nissan Takahashi mm -hmm. He wrote all of the Showa Gamera movies. I read in an interview with director Yuasa that Takahashi actually converted to Christianity from Buddhism thanks to his wife. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Also, and you would know more about this than me, Stuart Galbraith actually theorized that the Fantastic Voyage thing was also inspired, he thought, by an episode of Lost in Space where they go into the robot. I've not seen that episode, so I, I don't know. But Lost in Space is Erwin Allen, who also did, was it the Fantastic Voyage TV series? There was a Fantastic Voyage TV series? <laughs> no, no, no. That was something else. <laughs> it was submarines, but not in the body. <laughs> what was it? Uh, uh, the Voice to the Bottom of the Sea? Maybe. Jimmy can let us know later. <laughs> anyway, so yes, the obvious <laughs> toku topic for this episode, Expo 70. It's worth noting that... This film opened seven days after the expo started. When did the expo start, you ask? March 15th, and it went until September 13th of 1970. You also got a tour of the expo while they were filming the movie because they did film some stuff there. In fact, there's a whole sequence in the movie for where the whole movie basically stops for about 10 minutes and... Basically, if you watch the movie, it's telling you my Toku topic segment already. It's just, you know, explaining all of the stuff <laughs> for the movie. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, explain all the stuff for the expo for you right there. But here's the interesting thing. He got marching orders from the organizers of the expo to not destroy any buildings in the movie from okay. the expo. All right. I guess and that's a, that's uh, a huge is, plot point in the movie is they, they like Gamera stop the don't let them destroy the expo don't let it destroy the expo and when they're talking about the problem that they have of Jiger it's not human life they're talking about the expo like, yeah he's getting close to the expo we have to stop him yeah the, the expo the expo did you realize this is a commercial for the expo <laughs> <laughs> and Nissan Takahashi had actually just made a documentary on it so he had some insights into what the expo was like but it was a big deal to say the least in Japan 
So Expo 70 is the shortened version of the name of the event. The full name is the Japan World Exposition of 1970, and it was held in Suita, Osaka, and it was the first World's Fair hosted in an Asian country. Its theme, as they also mentioned in this movie, (laughs) is progress and harmony for mankind, or in Japanese, hopefully I don't butcher it too bad, Jinrui no Shinpo Tu Chowa. My apologies to my Japanese listeners. (laughs) With the equally idealistic supporting themes of toward the realization of a richer life, toward the utilization of a more bountiful nature, toward the design of better lifestyles, and toward deeper mutual understanding. Given that, much like the Olympics, the countries present were at war with each other, because you got to remember, this is the height of the Cold War. But they put aside all of those differences for the event. The expo attracted a record 64 million visitors and was the largest of any World's Fair until the Shanghai World Expo in 2010. The average daily attendance was 350,000. And from what I saw online, it cost $500 million in 1970 money to put on. That's crazy. <laughs> and, and those buildings that they showed as they're doing their travel log segment here, they're fascinating. Mm-hmm. The whole thing, we're actually in the expo, as boring as it might be maybe to like a, a young viewer who's like, why did the movie stop? And yeah. <laughs> were you looking at just pictures of buildings? But especially that opening pan shot where it's kind of that fisheye lens mm-hmm. and it's panning across. And I'm just, oh, this is interesting. Like, I don't know if they understood that, what, 50 years later, this was going to be a glimpse into history mm-hmm. in this camera movie. You know, I know and- of all things. But as I'll start to illustrate, it's not just this Gamera movie that references this because it was a big cultural event, as you'll soon find out. One of my sources told me that this event marked the traditionally accepted 2600th anniversary of the founding of Japan. It was supposed to happen in 1940, but it got delayed because of the war. So that's another significance that it had. And like any World's Fair, it integrated advanced technology, immersive multimedia environments, and eye-popping architecture, and, quote, projected Japan as a simulation site for a future society. Indeed, many journalistic accounts heralded the expo as Mirai no Toshi, or City of the Future, which is something we hear it described as in this movie, just as the 1939-1940 New York World's Fair had been cast as the world of tomorrow. Yeah, and you definitely see it on the screen here. Oh, yeah. I love the kind of neo-futurism thing that's going on there where they're looking into architecture of the future. And it definitely looks like the kind of place where, yes, let's go there to film a future sequence, you know, and and let's go there to film like the outdoor sequence of this movie that takes place in the future. Beautiful stuff. And so then I also then I did not the deep dive, but I was like, is this real? You know, what is (laughs) what is this? You know, and so I looked into a little bit and seeing some of the other buildings. It's just fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And I'll give you some of the numbers for the amount of pavilions and countries and everything who were represented there. It's uh, it was a big, big event. But you know why it probably looked and felt that way? Because a bunch of science fiction writers helped plan it. That was some of the stuff that I found in my research. Like Sakyo Komatsu, who was the author of Submersion of Japan and, relevant to our previous huh. episode, Sayonara Jupiter. Ah, <laughs> huh, really? Yeah. <laughs> he had a lot of connections with Toho and other things like this. 
One of the pavilions that was there was the Fujipan Robot Pavilion, which was produced by manga artist Tezuka Osamu, you know, the creator of Astro Boy and manga and anime. (laughs) And he also made, I'm not kidding you, he made a promotional kaiju for Shonen Jump magazine that was called Expora (laughs) to help promote the event. (laughs) It was made up of some of the different pavilions that were there. It's... (laughs) <laughs> really surreal and crazy and kind of cool. I think kind of cool, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you had the Mitsubishi Future Pavilion, which was realized by a team of science fiction auteurs, including special effects wizards Eiji Tsuburaya. Unfortunately, he died a few months before the expo happened, and then he got replaced with Yoshimitsu Bano, the director of Godzilla vs. Hedera. <laughs> and then they worked with some other science fiction writers, I admit I'm not familiar with a lot of these names, but I'll rattle them off for you anyway. Fukushima Masami, Hoshi Shinichi, and Yano Tetsu, oh, Testu, and an illustrator named Manabe Hiroshi. And they all worked under the direction of Tomoyuki Tanaka from Toho. And they even, at this event, according to Stan Hyde, they played music by Akira Fukabe. And Hmm. not only that, the expo coincided with the International Symposium of Science Fiction, <laughs> which was held in Japan from August 31st to September 3rd. Uh, it was in Tokyo, Nagoya, and Atsu. And they even took a tour of the expo site. And according to of this, it, and according to this, you'll find this interesting, Ben. It represented one of the first meetings between science fiction authors from both sides of the Iron Curtain and you know who were some of the people who were there? Oh, none other than Arthur C. Clarke and Brian W. Aldous, Judith Merrill, Frederick Pohl, and Vasily Pavlovich Bereznoy. These are some crazy names. Uh, Yuli, you know, you know what, Jimmy? You can just put the rest of these names up because they get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all from the Soviet Union. And then, obviously, you had some more Japanese science fiction writers. My apologies to my uh, you know, my uh, Eastern European listeners. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> these names. <laughs> and as I mentioned, it became a cultural touchstone. You might even know where some of these things, Ben. We'll see. So there have been fictionalized depictions of the expo. Besides the movie that we saw today, there was also a manga series called 20th Century Boys. It was made in 1999 to 2006, and it got made into a film trilogy by Toho in 2008 and 2009. Heard of it, but I haven't read it. Okay. And then the Tower of the Sun, which we'll be talking about the Tower of the Sun because it's the most iconic thing to come out of the expo, was transformed into a mecha to fight an evil robot. In 20th Century Boys. There was also a contemporary manga called Expo Daikaiju, where a monster attacks the expo, and then all the pavilions combine together into an anti-kaiju weapon to stop it. They Voltron, basically, (laughs) to fight the monster. There's even an explosion in an episode of Naruto that's shaped like the Tower of the Sun. And they're really, yeah. And then even before, even before the expo actually happened, if you watch an episode of Ultraman, it's the one where Gomorrah shows up and they're trying to capture Gomorrah so they could put Gomorrah on display at the expo. And that was in 1967. (laughs) And then episode seven of Kamen Rider was filmed there. And I'm actually fixing to watch that episode pretty soon. And then this is the one that I think you'll be familiar with, Ben, 
the landmark tower was used as a concept for ships in silent running. Yes, I did read about that and totally can see it. Like that is, that's cool. Yeah, and I've seen a photograph of that tower and I've seen the ship. I haven't seen silent running yet, unfortunately, but I've seen the sh- pictures of the ship. And I'm like, yep, definitely could see yeah. it. And it's definitely, that's a movie worth watching. It's a pre-Star Wars sci-fi movie that isn't perfect, but it's worth watching for sure. That is correct, Jimmy. Uh, it apparently can be rented on Amazon Prime, in case anyone was wondering. So, give a little history here of the expo. It was first proposed in 1964 by the Ministry of International Trade, or MITI, and proposed to the International Exhibitions Bureau, or BIE, to showcase Japan's post-war recovery and modernization, and as an economic stimulus, particularly for the Kansai region, which is where it was held. But just as the 1964 Olympics were criticized by the Japanese left as a diversion from the protest movement that had galvanized over the 1960 renewal of the Japan-U.S. security treaty, the left also expressed suspicion that Expo 70 would do the same when the treaty came up for its 10-year renewal. This, along with criticism of the event's ideology, fueled a lively and creative protest movement throughout its planning and execution. So, there was a study group that got together to help plan this. It was called the Thinking the Expo Study Group, which was formed in July 1964 and included Komatsu and other intellectuals and was instrumental in developing the Expo's themes and generating positive PR. In particular, they sought to connect the Expo's theme zone with Mirai Gaku, or Future Studies. Among other things, this group researched several post-war world's fairs and made several critiques that influenced the Expo's development. So I've got a few quotations here from one of my sources that talked about this, so I'll read those for you really quick here. It must not simply be a trade show designed to feature Japanese products and economic progress, but instead must have clearly articulated themes to serve as a site for exchange of knowledge and information, including information on such complex global problems as, for example, pollution, material scarcity and distribution, and genetic erosion and diversity. Here's another one for you. Expo planners should not miss the importance of the Expo as the first Asian world exposition and must emphasize the participation of Asian and African countries. Oh, we didn't talk about the African guy who gave us Jiger's name in this episode, I just realized. Yeah, that's in my notes, but... (laughs) By the way, from what I understand, that guy was just speaking gibberish. (laughs) It absolutely was gibberish. I mean, I don't know any language from any country in Africa, but I do know that was not one of them. (laughs) Yeah, well, there you go. So, one more quotation. The molding of the Expo environment must not be carried out by conservative bureaucrats, but rather planners should give cutting-edge artists and architects free reign to realize innovative visions. So, the event's theme committee wasn't ignorant of the seeming contradictions in its idealistic themes. The official theme statement even said, quote, Nevertheless, when we look at the situation of the world, we can see that mankind is beset by many forms of disharmony. Due to the high level of development of technical civilization, mankind today is undergoing a fundamental revolution in our entire way of life. But the many problems that arise from this are not yet resolved. Furthermore, in every region of the world, large inequities exist, and not only is the exchange both spiritual and material between each region clearly inadequate, but frequently 
understanding and tolerance are lost and friction and tensions erupt. Even science and technology themselves, if they are applied incorrectly, hold the possibility of leading mankind to ruin, end quote. Which is definitely a tension that you see in the Toho films, particularly those directed by Ashira Honda. Have you ever seen... Oh, no, actually, you have seen this, Ben, because the logo for the expo is in the movie, like everything else. (laughs) Uh, But it resembles a sakura or a cherry blossom, and it's representative of Japan. The five petals, it's kind of like the Olympic rings, actually. The five petals represent the five major continents, with the dot in the center signifying the Japanese flag. Now, did you remember them in the movie mentioning the symbol zone? Yes. Okay. The symbol zone was a key part of the expo because that's where its themes were expressed through architecture and design. You know, so we're talking about the neo-futurism. Wasn't this where, like, they had, like, it all, like, that's the hub, right? Yeah. It was where, uh, like, one of the main hubs. Everybody was there. You know, you, you go there to get to everything else. Mm-hmm. And- this was overseen by architect Kenzo Tange. And then another notable contributor to this was an artist named Taro Okamoto. You ever heard of Taro Okamoto? If I have, I don't know it. <laughs> have you ever seen a movie called Warning from Space? I have. Really? The starfish aliens? Yep. yep. He designed them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he proposed the Tower of the Sun, an it's abstract thing. Yep, which we see in this movie. We do see it in Gamera versus Jiger. It's an abstract art piece that bursts through the roof of the Central Festival Plaza. The name of the tower was coined by Komatsu, who used the novel Season of the Sun by I'm not a big fan of this guy personally, but uh, Shintaro Ishihara as the inspiration. I wish this was not a podcast, a radio show, and I could actually show you what it looks like. But I will do my best to describe it. It has two sun faces, one facing the past and the other facing the future. There was another one at the bottom of it, which was supposed to be in the underworld and would have different expressions depending on what lights were projected on it. I watched a presentation on this and there were some people that said that the thing looked like it was straight out of Neon Genesis Evangelion. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if that was the inspiration. There was a couple of other towers there as well from what I saw, although didn't really find nearly as much information on it, but they had the Tower of Maternity and the Tower of Youth. And okay, I mean, it's the different stages of life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and the plaza, this would have been interesting. The plaza was kind of fun because it had moving sidewalks that were called travators. <laughs> and they connected everything to some sub-plazas, a monorail that encircled everything, portals connecting the site to the outside rail and highway networks. It was nuts. It must have been... It, it sounds like it would have been like walking into the Jetsons world almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that's the future, right? Mm-hmm. You know, In the future, we don't have to use our legs. <laughs> we haven't quite gotten there yet. <laughs> no, no. It, but moving sidewalks are a regular part of life. But. Yes, this is true. So... I made sure to show you a picture of this before we got started, Ben, but the Tree of Life, that is the inside of the Tower of the Sun. It was, in case you didn't know, it was actually designed by Subaraya, Subaraya Productions that worked on the Ultraman shows, designed by Tonarita, and it's about 45 meters tall, and it's composed of a bunch of different creatures. I think Tree of Life is an interesting choice of name for it, especially if you start thinking about the biblical connections. Yeah. Now... From my understanding, from the movie, yeah, they, don't show the, they don't show the tree of you know, life. These branches of evolution and stuff, but yeah. mm-hmm. it is that's wild the irony to of look it. at. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a it gorgeous is. piece of art. 
Yeah. Again, so I don't know about what links you're going to be putting in of the Expo stuff, but the one that has the Tree of Life in it that you sent me when I followed that link, there's you get to see all the different buildings and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you get all these different visions of the future. But then that Tree of Life just feels, I guess the big difference is, and what's interesting is it's enclosed in the tower, but it's just super organic, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just everything about this whole display with the Tree of Life is super organic. And then you have all the other buildings all around that are just very mechanical and futuristic and metallic and mm -hmm. electric. You know, like there's just so much to it. There's things that look like flying saucers and there's just metal beams, you know, and that kind of thing. And so then you go inside the tower and you have this just organic thing that everything else is about mankind going to the future. This is about the earth, the world, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's fascinating to look at. Yeah, it really is. It's a very idealized kind of humanistic view of the universe, isn't it? Looking to the past and in that way, you know, talking about evolution and then thinking about what could mankind become in the future, continuing that upward trajectory, so to speak. Yeah. But one of the things I love to do is, and there's some really good books that do this that you can find, is just look at what people in the past thought the future was going to look like. And I think it'd be fair to say that us now in, in 2021, we are absolutely in the science fiction future that 1970 would have been looking toward and yeah uh, i mean i gotta admit we I, don't look like this <laughs> yeah i mean i gotta admit i freaked out a little bit when the, i came across the original blade runner uh, and uh, it said in november 2019 and i'm like oh my gosh it's november 2019 right now <laughs> <laughs> Where's my flying car, right? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Where are the androids? Where's Harrison Ford? <laughs> um, now, in my research about Expo in the 70s, um, I looked up Expo Land first because yes. that's what they mentioned in the in the movie. And that was an amusement park that was built, I think, near this to be kind of like the amusement place for the Expo. Mm -hmm. But then I was just looking at it and I was just like, oh, it's not open anymore because they did not recover from some deaths on some of their rides. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. see that in yeah, my so, research. Hot dang. Yeah, I thought, well, when I told you that I, I'd found this, or I told you I'd found some stuff about Expo Land, I thought that you'd also found this. But no, yeah, they, I knew uh, it existed. My understanding was that that was the popular spot for the kids. So, like, the kids would go over there and play. I didn't realize yeah, well, it, was it was dangerous. So, it was still functioning in 2007. Oh, wow. And... Yeah, and, and then in, let me see here. Yeah, it was 2007. They had a couple accidents, and then they closed down for a little while. They reopened, and then in 2009, they permanently closed it because oh, they man. never recovered from this. There was one, it was a stand-up coaster that fell off the rail, Oh, geez. and they found there were some cracks in it, and you have this legacy here of the expo, and then you have this here where it's like, oh, this is not the legacy they were hoping for with that, with Expo Land. Yeah, but. no, yeah. I, that is a very good point, Jimmy. For those of you who might be interested in learning a little bit more about the history of theme parks, check out episode 28 of MIFV. It's the episode on the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. All right, so the organizers wanted the Expo to not simply be a display of goods, but a site of communication and exchange. To that end, they preferred to call the event a festival about the information age. So I've got a couple of quotations here from my sources. 
For Tongay, the festival was the interchange of human energy, the exchange of human wisdom and creativity. For Okamoto, festival had a more anarchic, primal valence. The expo is a festival. I don't think that expositions are fundamentally about learning various types of scientific knowledge. Rather, they are a place where surprise and joy are commingled, where old concepts and scientific knowledge are wiped away and tossed aside, end quote. And the symbol zone became that kind of compromise and juxtaposition between the theme of progress and harmony and the concepts of exchange of information and festival. And, as you might expect, there was an emphasis on public spectacle with the, quote, placement of technological event systems designed by avant-garde architect Arata Isozaki, most notably the giant robots, giant robot, you heard me, <laughs> Darne and Deku, and when I saw Deku, I thought of Legend of Zelda, actually, designed to control lighting, move stage components, and otherwise facilitate expo events, end quote. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Really, Jimmy, you visited the expo when you were a kid and you saw the giant robots. No wonder you love building and driving giant robots now. So they were showing off all the different pavilions from different countries in the movie because, you know, that 10 minutes where it explained all of this stuff for me. If you saw the movie before listening to this, there were 76 countries, four international organizations, one government, Hong Kong, three states, two cities, and two companies from the United States, three provinces from your homeland of Canada. <laughs> okay, you, you moved to Canada. I'm right, sorry. right. I live there. Not, not my homeland, but I live there. Yeah. yeah. And one city from Germany with a total of 100 pavilions at the expo. If I remember correctly, those numbers were slightly different in the movie, but we'll move on. <laughs> the most popular national pavilions were, no surprise, the American Pavilion, which was an air-supported dome, and the Soviet Pavilion, which was the tallest one there, both of which highlighted the exploration and future development of, yes, Jimmy, to your delight, space. <laughs> uh, they exhibited, quote, NASA technology, yes, Jimmy, your future place of employment, a moon rock collected by the Apollo 12 astronauts in 1969 in the American Pavilion, which, by the way, that moon rock alone would see 80,000 visitors a day, and a life-size model of the Soyuz 4 and other spacecraft in the Soviet Pavilion. And some of them even had restaurants that served food from their respective countries. Whenever I read or hear about different world expos that have happened, I'm just like, man... I get chronologically jealous of these people who got to go to those things. It's the opposite of chronological snobbery. Yep. Yep. Chronological jealousy. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. That's a Ben Avery original right there. Chronological jealousy. Isn't that just nostalgia, though? <laughs> no, no, because this is something I never experienced. Mm. You know, this is something that I look at and I say, oh, if only I could have been there, you know, and and see this thing and. This, you know the moon rock and and the, and the tree of light like just experience all of this stuff that mm -hmm. was just for its uh its own period of time like it was of a time uh and in this case of a place as well mm -hmm. well here's some six degrees of separation for you then ben my dad told me that back when he was in the air guard he had the privilege of guarding a moon rock now that's cool mm -hmm. yes it is 
And then besides all of the national pavilions, we had some corporate pavilions there as well. So here's a little something from my source for you. Quote, other corporate pavilions, especially the Sanyo Pavilion, Midori Pavilion, and Takara Pavilion, presented visions of future lifestyles and consumer products, including the celebrated, and I'm not sure what they mean by this, the human washing machine? <laughs> I didn't get any, they didn't offer any clarification in my source for this. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. Is that a machine that washes people or is or it... is it humans that are doing the washing as a machine yes i don't understand i'm glad you're just as confused jimmy or ultrasonic bath pod in the sanyo pavilion while technologies of the future including flight simulators and wireless mobile telephones were demonstrated in such pavilions as Hitachi Group Pavilion, IBM Pavilion, and Electronic Communications Pavilion, end quote. So they had the early cell phones there. Hmm. And you know what else happened at this expo? They showed the first ever IMAX film. Yes, I did read about yep. that. Titan Again, Child. how fascinating to have been there. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I could find almost nothing on that movie itself, so I have no idea what it is. It's probably a, just a nature video. Probably, but there's something <laughs> for you to do, Jimmy. Find out what Tiger Child is about. And you know what else was showcased there? Local area networks or LAN. Remember LAN parties, Ben? They were fun. <laughs> <laughs> I remember them, but I never went to one. Yeah, I didn't really either. I knew more about LAN parties when uh, I, you know, I would get together with some friends and they would connect. And this is back when you would do that before. Playing online was such a huge thing, but you could connect Xboxes together and play that way. It was basically a LAN party. And you know what else they showed there? It's sort of relevant to the movie. Maglev. Magnetic levitation. Yeah. Yep. There you go. Now, I will admit this next point I really only snagged because I'm a little bit attached to one of the special days that it mentions, and I'll explain in a second. But, quote, during the period when the expo was held, 73 national days and 15 special days occurred. Their imperial highnesses, the crown prince and crown princess of Japan, attended a special ceremony held on Japan Day on June 29th. And I bring that up because June 29th is my birthday. <laughs> on that day, the images of Japan were strongly conveyed to around 10,000 people who visited the venue, including representatives from overseas countries, end quote. Yes, Jimmy, a little moment of ego for me. We're moving on. <laughs> now here's the interesting thing not everybody who was even at the event was necessarily all on board for it because some people who were there said this is really idealistic but it it's not necessarily going to hold up sub producer noburo kawazoe created what he called the wall of contradictions that included photos and photo collages addressing nuclear war and environmental damage among other issues that could be part of mankind's future this was suppressed by government officials who removed photos of Hiroshima victims in the display to tone it down. So yeah, I could see that kind of harshing the, the celebration vibe. Yeah, definitely. Wow, yeah. Now, huh. here's something that's really cool. You'll probably find this interesting, Ben. The <laughs> expo is noteworthy for being the one time there was an official, air quotes, official crossover between Godzilla and Gamera. Ah, and I did hear about this too. Yes. A stage show 
They did a stage show. They even had Haruo Nakajima in the Godzilla suit. <laughs> so actually, I heard about this not realizing that it was at the expo. I knew that there was a stage show mm -hmm. of them together, but I didn't realize it was actually a part of this expo that we were talking about in this episode. Mm -hmm. Interesting thing is, is that it was actually made to promote this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but and it not only had Godzilla and Gamera, it also had Jiger, Gorosaurus, Manila, and Space Gauss. <laughs> It was co-produced by Toho and Daie. Kanomura, Corn Job himself, was the MC. Nice. And they originally were going to have three performances a day, but suit actors were having a rough time of it, so they ended up only doing a, one performance a day. <laughs> Sadly, there's only a few seconds of footage and a few photos of this that exist, and that is really tragic because they would be playing that on repeat probably here on the island. I'm not a big part of the fandom, so to speak. And so I don't know how much like fan fiction there is about Godzilla versus Gamera, but <laughs> even outside of the fandom, there are some of the questions of Godzilla versus Gamera that I've come across. I find it interesting. I mean, as far as popularity, obviously Godzilla has Gamera slammed, you know, yeah. but yeah, well, don't tell that to the board because in their infinite wisdom, like I said, they made Gamera king of the monsters and yeah, trouble. So, did you know they buried a time capsule at the event? Uh, was it to be opened 5,000 years later? Yep. In the year <laughs> 6970. <laughs> it was donated by the Mainichi Newspaper Company and the Matsushita Electric Industrial Company. We're going to be waiting a long time on that. <laughs> That's the thing that I hate about time capsules is you have to wait for them to get opened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is all I got to say. That is the longest one I've ever heard of. Most of the time I hear about something that's like, you know, 50 years or 100 or something. 5,000. I want to know what was in this. What is in this thing that they think is going to last for 5,000 years? That I couldn't find. I would have loved to know what the <laughs> contents of this time capsule were. Well, they're not going to tell us what the, what the contents are because then what's the use of having a time capsule if you're just going to tell everyone what's in it to begin with, right? Yeah, now, you kind of hinted at it a little bit, Ben, but there is a commemorative park called Expo Park that's at the event's location now. And the Tower of the Sun is still there, so you can still go see the Tower of the Sun. So Yeah, I'm not going to make a trip just to see that, but <laughs> if I was in the neighborhood, I would absolutely go out of my way to see it. Eh, you're close enough now. I mean, this is Ogasawara, but yeah. I, although you're a family man, you got to get home, so I understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fact that you're here to, uh, to hang out with me for a little bit is tremendous privilege. So I'm going to have a link to this in the show notes. If you would like to hear Stan Hyde, who's one of the organizers of G-Fest, tell fun stories about when he went to the expo as a 13-year-old kid. He did a presentation for the Kaiju Masterclass online convention last fall. So you can take a look at that video. It's actually where I got some of the information that I presented here. But one last note, there's going to be another World's Fair in Osaka. They won the bid for Expo 2025. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not being held at the same location as Expo 70, but it's going to be in the same city. And the theme is going to be designing future society for our lives. So there you, you know, go. You know, a, a current day uh, World Expo just doesn't excite me as much as like, <laughs> this is from 1970 and the World's Fair in Chicago and, and some of those things like. Those excite me when I hear about them. I hear about this one. I'm just like, eh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite as interesting for you. You're feeling a little nostalgic there. 
I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> All right, Ben. There you go. City of the future. Something tells me that Expo 70 might have had a little bit of an influence here on Monster Island. I would not be surprised. I mean, you've seen some of the stuff they got here. Some weird architecture, I have to admit. Yeah, definitely architecture that looks futuristic but feels old. Yes, indeed. <laughs> anyway, with that out of the way, I think it's time that we... Oh, Jimmy, must you remind me? Of course you must remind me. But on the other hand, I don't like the idea of being shot into space. So yes, it's time for me to read a little something from the Monster Island Board of Directors by Orwellian Overlords. Although admittedly, this is a good couple of weeks old. It was originally posted on Twitter on May 15th, but here we go. On this day in 1951, Dr. Paul Stewart Sr. helped develop and administer the first ever kaiju vaccination to one of our residents, lovingly named Kooky Bernie, a.k.a. the Giant Claw. Here you see Dr. Stewart, and there's a photograph with this, and then-assistant Bill trying to lure Bernie over the music. We are pleased to announce that in celebration of this momentous bit of history, we are providing free COVID-19 vaccinations to all of our residents and volunteers on the island. These vaccines are optional, and for legal reasons, we cannot force you to get them, but we would like all of our wonderful staff to consider the safety of some of our oldest residents who call our humble island their home. As a team, and with a little luck, we can stomp out COVID once and for all. We trust that you all will be on board with these efforts, enabling us to get back to a normal way of life and helping creatures big and small find a better way forward. Thank you, the Monster Island BOD. So there you go. Can we move on now? I think the stomping out of COVID is something that everyone wants to do. And I think that really, if you're going to stomp it out anywhere, um, Monster Island is the place for stomping. So. This is true. I'm just a little bit nervous because I think Dr. Dante Doroff, who has appeared on the show once and is now in charge of special projects here on the island, that I think is handling that. And Damon Noyes posted on Twitter that everyone doesn't need to worry because apparently the mutations caused by this vaccine only last for a couple of days. But the memories last forever. Yes, they do. Anyway, with that, we can now get to a very important segment of the show, the Patreon shoutouts. Go show Travis Alexander! Michael Hamilton! Danny Damana! Eli Harris! Chris Cook! Damon Noise! And finally, Bex from Redeemed Otaku! Thank you so much to all of you, my wonderful, wonderful patrons. And if you, listeners, would like to join MIFV Max on Patreon, starting at just $3 a day, check out the show notes for this episode. And thank you, Ben, for tapping into your inner anime character to help me with that. <laughs> $3 a day? Uh, $3 a month, excuse okay. me. <laughs> See, you beat me. Yeah, you beat Jimmy to it. Yeah, you're sharp, man. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Jimmy and I, we got to stick together. Yes, and... you do. <laughs> yeah. All righty then. 
All right, and this is the part now where I tell you what our next couple of episodes are going to be, listeners. Our next episode is going to be the first of a new series of Minisode episodes. That's right, Godzilla Redux. I'm going back to that well because, by popular demand, you've told me that you would rather hear me cover it again as opposed to checking out what I did in my previous podcast life. So we begin that series with the original 1954 Godzilla. And uh, my plan is to have my core group of tourist co-hosts, which hopefully will consist of Nick Hayden, Timothy Deal, and my friends Joe and Joy Metter. I'm really looking forward to that. When was the last time you checked out the original Godzilla, Ben? It's been three or four years. (laughs) Well, maybe now you'll have an excuse to check it out again before that (laughs) next episode comes out. And then the year of Gamera will continue when we will be looking at, who boy, Gamera versus Zigra. (laughs) Yeah, that is the appropriate reaction. And it is once again an MST3K episode that I will not be allowed to see, but my guests will. And who are my guests for that episode? Travis Alexander, host of the Kaiju Weekly Podcast and one of the MIFV Max members, and Matt Noponen, the host of the recently started Atomic Turtle Podcast. You're having a little too much fun thinking about a giant space shark, aren't you? <laughs> There's, there, there is some good stuff in that movie, but it's absolutely better to watch with Joel and the gang. Yeah, here's a little preview for you, Ben, and everyone else who's listening to this. I have jokingly referred to that thing as an exploitation film for children. Yeah, I I think that the case could be made. For one particular reason. (laughs) Let's just say the guys working on the set of that movie were trying really hard to come up with a reason to have a pretty girl walking around in a bikini for about 15 minutes. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, That movie. Yeah. (laughs) But it only goes downhill from there. And with that, an episode of MIFE would not be complete without some shameless self-promotion. Tell us about the podcast empire, Ben. Yeah, so there's basically four podcasts where you can find me. And depending on your tastes and your interests, you might find them relevant to your tastes or and or interests. I host a podcast called Welcome to Level 7. It's about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we'll be talking about Loki very soon and hopefully posting our final episode with Falcon and Winter Soldier in the next couple of days. I have not had a chance to edit it together yet. Ah, I also host a podcast about comic books in general called The Comic Book Time Machine which is more sporadic than anything else, but it's just my opportunity to talk about comics that I like. And relevant to the interests of those listening to this episode, you have covered the Marvel Godzilla comics. Yeah, not all of them, but close to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I also then host a podcast called Strangers and Aliens, which is about science fiction and faith and just kind of taking a look at just different things in pop culture and looking through the lens of uh, my faith in Christianity and you know, all that fun stuff. Yeah, so, you've had me on that one actually a couple of times now. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you are podcast family on that one for sure. You've been on there a number of times and it's been a lot of fun having mm-hmm. you there. And then finally, there is Supersonic Pod Comics, which is a uh, superhero audio drama series. Which has been really exciting. I've been listening to that, and it's been tremendous fun. 
I'm getting to the point now where I may have to join your Patreon because I want new episodes really bad right now. Yeah, well, we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> and that's th- that's a lot of work to do a full oh. full length audio drama episodes, and yeah, we're working. Oh, on I, it, I bet. So. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> I know all about it. And in light of you hosting Strangers and Aliens, I, I should introduce you to Reverend Mufune, who's the chaplain here on the island. I think you two would get along really well. All right, but I do need to get on my boat. Hey, I didn't drop my pen. It was here in my pocket all along. Ah, wow. dang. I found my pen. Wow, what a great day. Yes, great day indeed. And on that happy note, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault. And on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at Monster Isla BOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon, The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Well, Jimmy, uh, I would say that was a pretty good day. That was one of the snappiest broadcasts we've ever had. I am so glad that we brought Ben back for this episode. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's hard to compete with you and your best friend in Virus. I mean, these kids just weren't all that memorable, and... Trick-or-treat for UNICEF, Mr. Marchand. We are planning on leaving anytime soon. Uh, Dr. Dorif, I presume? I fancy seeing you here. It's, uh, been a while. Actually, have we ever met before? I mean, you called in the show once, but, uh, yeah. Well, this is our first face-to-face appearance. I hope I don't disappoint. I've been told I am aggressively handsome. Sure. Uh, what's with the big needle? Well, Mr. Marchand, I... I have just come by to show you my excruciatingly pretty face. I... I'm here on what you might call... A mission. A mission from your friends at the board. Oh, yeah, those guys. Uh, What's that mission? Well, as I'm sure you've probably been informed, there's an incredibly dangerous virus that's currently ravaging the planet. And, well, I'm just here to ensure that you're doing your civic duty 
It's stabby, stabby time, Mr. Marchand. I've got your vaccine right here, and you're not leaving until I've administered it. Jimmy, can you do something about this? He locked the door? You mother... Oh, now, language, Mr. Marchand, you know I listen to every show, and this is a family program. I wouldn't... I wouldn't want you to say anything that might upset the kitties. <laughs> yeah, the, we're off the air, right, Jimmy? Good. Then I can speak a little bit more freely. But, uh, okay, I guess apparently it, the this is no longer optional for me. So, uh, okay. All right. I'll uh, roll up the sleeve here for you. Just get it over with. Yes, yes. Roll it up slower. Yeah, yeah. No, no, faster than that. Okay. Perfect, okay, okay. perfect. Yeah, there you go. And stop. Stop right there. Stop okay. right there. Stop right there. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. Okay. No higher, no lower. Okay. You seem a little bit disturbed, maybe even nervous, Mr. Marchand. Well, yes. Uh, I've heard stories I've, about this vaccine. Uh, I've heard that since you're now head of special projects, you've uh, made some improvements. Oh, yes, yes. You see, I was given a special task. I was presented with a challenge. Back on the mainland, a bunch of incredibly intelligent people have put together a remarkable vaccine. Multiple of them, in fact. I'm sure you've heard of them. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, I'm very happy to tell you that all of those magnificent, amazing vaccines, your Moderna's, your Pfizer's, the ones that are actually, you know, saving people on the mainland and preventing death, saving lives, getting people back to normal, doing good for the world. That's not what I'm giving you today. Oh, Mr. what? No? no, no, no. Hold on now. I don't want you to be nervous. Listen and hear me out. We couldn't get any of those actual functional vaccines to the island, I'm sorry to say. So what I have here in my magical syringe is something a little bit different, something I cooked up right here in my lab, right here on Monster Island. Oh, interesting. Uh, are you yes. going Are you going to get it patented? Pa- patent what? Is, isn't that a movie? Well, never mind, never mind. <laughs> I want, no, 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 don't panic. I just want you to know I've taken every precaution. Granted, I didn't have the blueprints for the original vaccines, and I kind of had to wing it. But I think we'll both be very, very happy with the results. Yeah, I I hope so, too. Uh, I've heard that the uh, the mutations are only temporary. The Damon Noise told me about that. Oh, they wear off within a couple of days. Uh, uh, The one exception would be the giant mushroom that's stampeding across the island right now i don't what? know what they're calling him the, 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 uh, is that the is that the one that was supposedly killed by an ultraman or something it's yeah well, well i don't know if he was killed he's still out there still causing trouble still being beautiful uh, okay so so beautiful okay it's just just Stick it in and get it over with. Okay. All right. But first, I, I must ask a few questions. Okay. Do you have any allergies I should be aware of? Uh, the, no. Oh, well, bananas. Bananas hate me. Bananas want to kill me. Uh, that's why I, I never volunteer to feed Kong, because, yeah, the bananas well, will kill me before the monkey does. 
Well, then, I'm sorry to say your side effects might last two to three weeks. Mother trucker. All right. <laughs> What's the next one? Well, uh, I have a few more simple questions here. Are you known for your work in the theater? On occasion? Why? Literally no reason. <laughs> I'm just trying to scare you. <laughs> You're succeeding! Is it, is it working? Yes, Jimmy! <laughs> Jimmy, can you do uh, Crap, he turned his speaker off. Oh, mother. All right. Listen, it's all in good fun, Mach, and I hope you're not actually scared. I'm just trying to be funny. I know I'm not really all that intimidating. Not very. Anyway, uh, are those Here all Here we go. Okay. Well, just... All right. Here we go. Stabby, stabby time, Mr. Mach, and... Here comes the airplane, and poop! Now it'll all be over in a second, Mr. Machan. Hold on, hold on. Oh, wait, I forgot to ask you if you're allergic to mushrooms. Not that I know of. Well, that is a relief. And, well, I should probably take it out. Yeah. And out it goes. There we go. Okay. Now, Mr. Machan, that wasn't so bad now was it no no I, I only had a few flashbacks to visiting the doctor as a child and getting my kindergarten shots that's all that's yeah well i'm glad to hear it because as you know i am a very big fan and i hope you didn't take my little joke earlier at face value i certainly want you to know i i do know what i'm doing and I have administered this vaccine to no fewer than 130 people on the island so far, and so far only one of them has not had serious side effects. Uh, that's uh, that's good to know. Uh, just uh, before you go, uh, good doctor, I, I have a question for you. Uh, you know, the, the board sent you here on a mission. Uh, how do you uh, feel about what the board's been doing the last few months? Well, Mr. Marchand, I going to, I, what do the kids say these days, level with you. <clears throat> this is what I know. Earlier today, I was contacted via, no via a note slid underneath my door. It told me to give you the shot, and it was signed, The Board. I looked at it for a minute, and then I was hit with a revelation unlike anything I've had since my last mushroom injection. <laughs> I've never really heard of this board before today, so honestly, if you're looking for insight, I can't say I can help you. All I know is they told me to stab you, so here I am. Okay, that's, uh, that's all I needed to know. Uh, got a Band-Aid? Well, I have a used one. If you could just give me a moment, I'm sure I could remove it. There might uh, be some errant hairs stuck here and there, but uh, if you'll... Just allow me to. That, 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 that's okay. That's okay. I think. I think are you, we'll be are fine. you sure? It, yeah. it will only take a moment. Yeah, that's okay. I think. I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think we have a first aid kit in the in the green room. We'll be okay. 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 Well, in that case, I I must get back to my precious mushroom children. I I haven't seen them in so long. I've been so preoccupied with my new responsibilities. They must miss me so, and dare I say, I miss them more than life itself. It has been so long since I have tasted of them, since I have consumed, since I have been among them. Well, Mr. Marchand, there's nothing left to say but toodaloo. <laughs> 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 <laughs>